Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. On ABC Radio. Aboriginal football is represented by the, 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 the blokes from, uh, from LARPA and, and, and Redfin because there was no other sports, you know. Uh, there was no golfers. The closest they got to golf was, was uh, carrying the, the rich white players' bags as caddies. And uh, some people could only look back on the players who represented us some years back. You see what they come through to get where they were because, you know, none of them had a pair of football boots even. A History of Aboriginal Rugby League in New South Wales. This is Speaking Out, I'm Jay McAllister. Since its inception in 1908, Rugby League has proven extremely popular amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Nationally, data shows 19% of all registered Rugby League players are Indigenous. Despite great representation today, a colour bar limited Aboriginal involvement for many years with First Nations participation largely taking place on missions and reserves. So what influence did race-based social policy have on the uptake of rugby league by Aboriginal men? Where did the sport sit within the context of Aboriginal self-determination? And what role does footy play in asserting cultural identity in contemporary Australia? Tonight on Speaking Out, we explore the historical relationship between Aboriginal people and the sport of rugby league. New South Wales rugby league star Latrell Mitchell stands with his chest out as he leads a passionate war cry before the NRL Indigenous All-Stars game. It's an expression of his Aboriginal culture, strength, resilience and survival. It's also a reflection on how far the game has come in terms of the inclusion of Aboriginal players. Well, look, sport was another limiting barrier. I mean, let's face it. I mean, the, the colour bar was used to prevent Aboriginal participation, except, and we had this discussion before from boxing, where people could get killed in the ring. But there was a resentment. There was just this this racism and prejudice and oppression of, you know, um, holding Aboriginal people, not at arm's length, but bloody not even street lengths, but, you know, uh, miles of length. Uh, from participation in sport. A lot of the people that came down throughout the 60s and 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s uh, were virtual transient people who come looking for a better life. Well, some of those sons have grown up to be, be, uh, you know, international uh, players. And they were bred in places like down the block at Redfern and through La Perouse and further down the coast out towards the mountains and places like this and to start to merge to the country areas and they, they'd all come to Sydney and now it's just unbelievable the, the heights they've reached from being mission kids. 
Throughout history, dozens of New South Wales-born Aboriginal men have made their mark on the sport of rugby league, to the joy of fans across the country. Longbottom, who's kicked 34 goals during the season, takes the kick from just short of halfway. So Nathan Merritt, there it is, try number five. Can he get it to Corowa? Corowa's going infield, he's inside Sparks and there it goes, the golden flash is on his way. Lions. Lions has made a half break. He heads for the line. He's over. Lions has scored from the scrum. Cliff Lions. Stewart across the daily. Daily. Murray Daly. Oh, that is magnificent. Made in fullback, Eric Sims. And it's there. Nationally, data shows that 19% of all registered rugby league players are Indigenous. It's a stunning number. Because, as historian John Maynard points out, Aboriginal men haven't always been accepted within the game. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? You know, why rugby league? You know, and and, and we know that there's enforced barriers for, through most of that game's history from us playing the game, and not just rugby league. I mean, up until the late '60s, you could count on two hands the number of Aboriginal players in AFL or or rugby league. It actually got to go, but. Um, we made our own teams in earlier earlier times. We were denied, you know, to, to actually have a go, you know, and so we, we made our own game, teams and had our own games. I mean, in the country areas, that must have been because of being able to watch games and see the game being played and then sort of mimicking it and, and taking the game on. And, of course, we know we were, we were good at it. Let's go back to the start. Where did it all begin? Sure, Aboriginal people loved the game. They were talented, skillful and enjoyed playing. However, Aboriginal participation in rugby league has occurred in the context of race-based social relations and the state's historical control over Aboriginal lives. To understand the intersection of these issues, we need to get our heads around the politics of the early 1900s. Here's John Maynard once more. Yeah, sure. The, the New South Wales Aboriginal Protection Board was established in 1883, but it was not till around 1910 that Aboriginal people, you know, the changes were made and it was more stricter from about that point on because up till then, Aboriginal people were largely left to themselves to govern their own lives, you know, on traditional country largely, you know, and, and our movement, we were able to move across country and across the state in search of work as well. But from about 1910, the Protection Board began a process of revoking these successful independent Aboriginal farms and forcing Aboriginal groups on the more heavily congested and controlled reserves with limited capacity to have any control over one's own life and decisions. This really escalated by the time the 1930s had come around, and that was probably the height of this where, you know, these these uh, heavily congested and controlled reserves. Now, the, these reserves, these tightly controlled one, uh, the highlights of those were poor housing, health, limited or no education, the clothing was doled out here in blankets, um, the food was inadequate, 
even who you could marry and who you couldn't marry and where you could go. And most people, as I said, were confined on these heavily restricted areas of tightly controlled um, government uh, reserves and missions. The board also introduced a policy of Aboriginal child removal that would see thousands of Aboriginal kids removed from their families and placed into institutions, the boys to be trained as labourers and the girls as domestic servants. Of course, we know that today as the um, stolen generations. And so these were the changes that come in, coinciding with the, the, the rise, I guess, of organised rugby league. The establishment of Aboriginal missions and reserves would prove influential in Aboriginal men taking up the game. Uh, my name's Heidi Norman. I'm a professor of history and politics at the University of Technology, Sydney. Most missions and reserves had an Aboriginal side, so whether it was Amori Boomerangs or, you know, Burrabidee and all over the state, you know, too, too many to mention and, of course, at the risk of leaving somebody out. Um, but most most reserves or missions had an Aboriginal side. And then there are also some interesting examples I came across from approximately 1932 with um, on the south coast at Unundera with the opening of the Picture Theatre, the Paramount Picture Theatre. There was an exhibition match between, um, according to the banner, it said Unundera v Abos. So, you know, I would assume that was the mission side that played the town side to commemorate the opening of the picture theatre. And a bit of an irony, given that it would have been highly unlikely you would have been allowed into the picture theatre, or if you were allowed in, it was under very limited sort of conditions. Um, There are also a couple of other examples. So, for instance, out at Dubbo in 1947, it could have been before or after, there was a side that Waratahs, they were called, and it was in in the press... Entry, it was a mixed-race side from the Railway Workers' Union, so they could have been around before or after. Early examples of Aboriginal involvement in rugby league are mostly by the way of mission teams. But it's important we take a look at the life and career of Jackie Brooks. Jackie Brooks is the first known Aboriginal man playing in a town site, a white team. He's just amazing. There is an incredible archive of local newspapers writing about him in terms of when he was playing on the wing for the Katoomba sides. He also played out in the bush. He trialled for selection in the city-country game. He was certainly se- selected and had a, played a representative game in the region. He missed out on the country selection. He was the playmaker. He was the star. Many games he was the, you know, the first and last to score, sometimes the only one to score. So he was absolutely pivotal to the side. He was the inaugural best and fairest player uh, and his name was, you know, marked on the shield for the Katoomba side. He was not only the best and fairest, but then everyone cheered uproariously. So he was someone who was really well liked, I think. And then he also performed. He sang, he danced, he played the gum leaf. Um, Yeah, so he was just an all-round sort of star. Why was it so significant to have him in the team? Why was it such a significant thing to have an Aboriginal person in the team? I haven't come across any other examples of Aboriginal men playing in mainstream sides. We, you know, that I mentioned the mixed race side from Dubbo, the Railway Workers Union. But I haven't come across any other examples of a, of an Aboriginal man playing in a town side at that time. 
But, you know, he was, he was lauded in the newspaper reporting, but he also, he worked at the Hydro Majestic and then later at the Carrington on the main street of Katoomba. And there's a lovely inscription there on the pathway. It says, Jackie's in the kitchen. He's always good for a tune. And, uh, but he worked at the, working at the Hydro Majestic. He took his employer to court for unfair wages, for unpaid wages, and he won. So if there was a colour bar against Aboriginal men, how did someone like Jackie Brooks get a start? It all depends on the area where you were. That's the same as military service. I mean, Aboriginal people were denied military service in many areas, yet for some reason, in some areas, um, white communities were supportive. And this was also the the same with sporting participation. So, I mean, you, you mentioned Jackie Brooks. Jackie Brooks is another one of those unknown Aboriginal sporting histories. I mean, so he's a later revelation and was a sporting um, rugby league hero in the Katoomba district of the Blue Mountains. I mean, and but why? What, what was the reason? There was certainly an Aboriginal community in close proximity of the location where he was. Um, but in other areas, Aboriginal people, as I said, were, were denied that entry. But of course, if you were good, I mean, this guy was clearly very, very good footballer, incredible speed, um, a tackling machine, and there are incredible accounts for the newspapers of his exploits on the footy field. So, again, it comes back to you know the area where you were, you know, where you were brought up in, or you were happened to be tied to, and also there must have been white support in that community. Um, and there, there are pockets of that we've got to recognise that there are certain areas across this state who gave us historically support. Where are there? Uh, some other areas that continue today to be extremely racist centres. I mean, you know, they stand out. Aboriginal children from Moree come to Sydney to play rugby league against youngsters from Cromer Public School near DY. The game is organised as part of the National Aborigine Day ceremonies and the Cromer parents house the Aboriginal guests while they're in Sydney. They're all ready and the game gets underway when Mr Dick Healy, MLA, kicks off. The game is pretty rugged. The boys from Moree have a very big reputation and they show plenty of pace and style. But the Sydney boys have been well coached. It's a fairly even game. Two Aboriginal teams played in Sydney earlier this year and both won. But this time, the boys from Cromer just have the edge. They're leading 3-0, and they're holding on to that lead. There's no racial discrimination among these youngsters. They're just two teams playing a game of football. Both sides have cheer squads, and when the game's over, it doesn't really matter which side won. By the middle of the century, we start to see more Aboriginal teams playing in or against mixed-race sides. Professor Heidi Norman has a theory as to why. So I, I looked at Dawn magazine. So Dawn magazine, I looked at the first edition. It started in 1952. So keeping in mind by this time, the Aborigines Protection Board had been replaced in name to the Aborigines Welfare Board, and there was a different orientation so by 1952, this is after the Second World War, the horrors of scientific racism. And so Dawn magazine 
you know, a less kind way to describe it is that it's a kind of propaganda magazine. And it was really the mouthpiece of the welfare board's policy agenda. So, it, um, and at that time, it was one of assimilation. So it was about creating disciplined, upstanding um, citizens out of out of blackfellas, and um, you know, advocating how to you know polish your pearl buttons and knit and dress a house and look after your your husband. It was really you know it was a model of the nuclear family, and um, and you know a key part of that that. I looked at Dawn, that first edition in 1952, to think about how that magazine and the government's policy agenda, what that looked like in relation to rugby league. For many years, Australian Aborigines have been outstanding in boxing and running, particularly in the first. But why is it we do not see more of them in many other sports? Properly trained and developed, the Australian Aborigine should be able to run and swim faster and jump higher and further than the white man. With his keen eyesight, which can spot a school of fish in a line of breakers half a mile off the shore, he should be a keen tennis player, marksman or golfer. Surely the time will come as the Aborigine is assimilated into the white community when he will participate in all these other sports. And what what became apparent is that the Dawn magazine and the government welfare board, they were really encouraging of Aboriginal men participating in rugby league, of mission sides and competitions between missions, you know, certainly along the North Coast, for instance, and of, um, you know, of, of Aboriginal men competing in rugby league, mostly in those reserves and mission sides of saving up money to travel, of um, families gathering through rugby league. But there was... Um, there are a few other points. One is that there was a um, considerable reference to Kinchilla Boys' Home, and if you didn't know any better, it, it's depicted as something like a, a children's paradise, which is not in any way reflected in the observances of the men today who live their childhood there. But one key point that comes up is the excitement of the Kinchilla boys playing in the school sides. So playing for Kempsey and uh, then getting selection for the, you know, New South Wales representative teams. So that that's a really interesting thing. And the conclusion I came from that close study of all of those references to rugby league in Dawn is that the welfare board saw Aboriginal men and boys from from the from the home in particular, their participation in rugby league as a way to demonstrate the effectiveness, the efficacy of the welfare board in creating these upstanding disciplined subjects who were on their way to um, to becoming you know white citizens, and um, and also how rugby league was a tool. So say there was a in one entry there was an outline of a when the superintendent of the board arrived at one of the North Coast communities and he had in attendance the head of the rugby league, local rugby league competition, police, head of the church. So these are the kind of... um, You can see that achieving participation in rugby league was a really... uh, They saw that as a way to leverage their assimilation ambitions. 
when Captain Cook anchored off the beach in Botany Bay on the morning of April the 29th, 1770, he and his crew were confronted by a group of Australians, curious as to what the white man wanted in this remote part of the world. Today, just on 200 years later, Aborigines still live across Botany Bay from Cook's Landing Place on traditional tribal grounds at La Perouse. This windswept promontory, one of Sydney's forgotten suburbs, still overlooked by the developer, is named after and commemorated for La Perouse, the French explorer whose fleet called here in 1788 and then sailed off into the Pacific where he and his ships were lost. Today, apart from the French captain's memorial, and the collection of houses in need of painting. La Perouse is notable mainly for containing the only Aboriginal reserve within the metropolitan boundaries of any of Australia's capital cities. Here on the reserve itself, and in houses close by, among the local white population, live between two and three hundred people of Aboriginal descent. Some claim descent from the tribes who lived on this coast when Cook arrived. Most are from the inland areas of New South Wales, who've come to the city in search of the things that they find hard to obtain these days in the country. In Sydney, two clubs defied this dominant discourse of assimilation. The La Perouse Panthers and Redfern All Blacks forged community links and articulated a distinctive sense of Aboriginal identity. Yeah, well, I'm a big Sims. I'm a, I'm a bidical man from La Perouse, where I was born and I was raised and I'm still there today, and so most of 98% of my bloodline. Lapa people had to persevere because you've got to remember Lapa is the first mission ever discovered on the eastern uh, seaboard of Australia and uh, growing up there wasn't easy but living on a mission didn't, didn't deny us the fact that there was sporting talent in the community. During the Depression years, Lapa would become home to blacks, whites and new migrants who were bound together by the common theme of poverty. Tell me, honestly, you're 21 years old now, yeah. you've told me. Have you always been conscious of the fact that you, you were different from others? No, never. Have you ever been made to feel uh, conscious about it? No. I, I, I met a lot of friends. I went to school with them, playing sports with them, all functions like that, you know. Well, uh, the footy club started out about the late 1930s, 1940s, and my father and my my uncles and all that played for, for La Perouse. And they, they played against the local size like Maruba and Mascot. And there were so many teams in the, in the local South Sydney area. But uh, Aboriginal football was represented by the, 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 the blokes from, uh, from Larpa and, and, and Redfin because there was no other sports, you, you know. Uh, there was no golfers. If it, if it, the closest they got to golf was, was uh, carrying the, the rich white players' bags as caddies. And, uh, but they've excelled in everything. And, and Lapa was a, was a spiritual uh, area where culture is still alive today. Uncle Vic says by the time he was growing up in the 1950s, rugby league was a mainstay within the local community. You couldn't get home quick enough to play football on our sort of what we call the flat. It was a flat area, which was a rec- recreational reserve. And, uh, you know, the first thing mother would say after we got home, we said, we're home, ma'am. And, uh, all right, we're going up and have a game of footy on the flat with all the lads. And, uh, and so we'd get into it and, and, and play until the sun went down. 
And then after after dinner, we'd go up under this lighted area off the street and, and play up there too. So it was well bred into us. That's who our uncles and our fathers and our some of some some of uh, the East children's grandfathers and great grandfathers that existed in that era. In Sydney, they call him Lapa after La Perouse. His real name is Bruce Stewart, and he's an Aborigine. During the week, Lapa drives a truck for a Balmain electrical store. Before that, he was a caddy at the New South Wales Golf Club. But it's not his truck driving that's made him a local idol. He's an idol because he's Lapa Stewart. And just watch him go. The flying winger for Eastern Suburbs Rugby League team. Lapa looks for the try line every time he gets the ball. And he takes a lot of stopping. Some people could only look back on the players who represented us some years back. You see what they come through to get where they were. You know, they, they virtually never did, you know, because, you know, none of them had a pair of football boots even. So they just, uh, you know, just just scrounge, uh, go caddying, carry rich people's golf bags around the, the courses that prevailed around Lapa, and then they save up and get themselves a pair of shoes. That's, that's the way it worked. Yeah. There, there was hardly any work, you know, uh, for any of the men. There was no dole then, back in those days. It was just, uh, and I can still remember the last days of the rations, you know, and they didn't give out football boots along with the, with the, the meat and the, and the flour and the tea and the mm. sugar and the tobacco that they handed out. So, uh, you know, to every success to these young men today, they yeah. wear their stripes, you know, and I take great pride in that, and so, so do we all. The Redfern All Blacks were founded in 1944. By this time, inner city Sydney had become home to an ever-expanding number of Aboriginal families. The Welfare Board generally were encouraging, they had like a push-pull factor of encouraging families to move off the reserves and into either regional centres or industrial centres. So you see the push-pull of the Welfare Board to disperse people from reserves as a way to achieve a, you know, your in- integration or enmeshment in the, you know, white, the white suburbs. And at the same time, I think there's certainly a pattern of Aboriginal families leaving the reserves and missions in order to protect the security of their family. So as the removal of children was accelerating, as powers became expanded to remove children, there was a a lot of families moving down to the city, following in like a chain migration kind of pattern. So if you had other family here, in those circumstances, the city populations were rapidly increasing, but also employment was just so abundant. You know, workers poured out of Redfern Station, for instance, and uh, work was so abundant in the many factories, light manufacturing uh, around the streets of South Sydney. You could go from one factory to the next to the next until you got a job. This is Caroline Street, Redfern, where some 30 Aboriginal and part Aboriginal families live, sometimes two or three families to a house. Their children play with the children of Australians, Greeks and Italians on the dusty playground and their menfolk go to work in the factories of Sydney like the other men in this area. Their womenfolk hang their laundry on the narrow balconies like their neighbours. Some among them are not renting their houses but buying them, and one such is Ken Brindle. In his house in Caroline Street, he looks after his family and any of his many relatives from the country who care to visit him. Ken Brindle is a labourer. 
How do they come into the city and how these 2,000 of them got into Sydney and got houses here? Well, uh, gradually, a family will, will move its cousins and their cousins into the city. Uh, they tell them that if they come to the city, they can get decent employment. They're not working for uh, pittance, you know, as they do in the country. If, I, if you'd have had more time, I'd like to take you around to some of the families' homes. They're like That's uh, where they're sort of buying their homes and show you just how uh, big an improvement it is on the uh, conditions on reserves. The All Blacks played an important role in helping young Aboriginal men adjust to life in the city. Uh, my name's Lyle Munro. Uh, people refer to me as Lyle Munro Jr. I come from Moree, and like a lot of other young people back there in the late 60s and 70s, I'm one of those who gravitated to, the, to Redfern. As I understand, the Blacks uh, were formed back in the, in the 1940s, joined South City Junior Competition, and... Um, I think inherited the name from the Guernseys that South Junior supplied black jerseys. Some say some of the history dates back to um, the Depression. Uh, some of the history is related to the, um, the returned soldiers. Some of the history says that some of them were responsible for the, uh, the formation of the All Blacks. The team's appeal was in its community pride a further example of the significant shift towards self-determination within Sydney's Aboriginal community. At, at the time, there was a curfew in Redfern, uh, an unofficial curfew that applied to uh, black people, Aboriginal people. It was the time of the formation of the major Aboriginal organisations, legal service and medical service, um, housing company and children's service. 193 Regent Street, Redfern. The storefront home of the... It was the time of the formation of the um, National Perspective and uh, Redfern was alive with um, Aboriginal people from all over the country, in particular New South Wales. Um, and, uh, of course, Redfern All Blacks is steeped in, in the political history of the area, um, I think, from day one. Springboks, eat your hearts out. These are the Redfern All Blacks, and they want to go to South Africa. So far, they haven't asked to be flown by the RAAF, but they say the South African government should at least extend the same courtesy to an all-black team as the Australian government has done for the all-white South Africans. As yet, they're not entirely organised. Part of the problem is that they play league and not union, but they're not too worried by this. In fact, they plan to make up a team of the best black footballers in Australia, even if some of them play Australian rules. If you see photos of the, the, the past uh, All Blacks, you'll see a lot of us who were involved in the formation of the organisations and, and the marches back then uh, played for the All Blacks. Uh, Paul Coe played for the All Blacks, uh, Sol Blair, uh, Billy Craigie. Kevin Smith, uh, myself, um, Raymond Swan, also um, uh, people that work in the organisations from the North Coast and the South Coast and uh, Western New South Wales were very much involved in the, uh, in the struggle um, and also in the politics that uh, Reds and All Blacks were playing because the solicitors and the, the Aboriginal field officers from the legal services and the other organisations standing on the front line during these raids. Uh, a lot of those uh, people on the front line then played for Red and All Blacks. 
Described as the world's biggest corroboree, the Koori knockout is about much more than just the game of rugby league. It's a great opportunity to see you know, something at a, you know, a happier place and um, you know, a happier environment. So it's, um, yeah, it's our modern day corroboree and I love being a part of it. Catching up with friends, um, playing for the names that are on our chest, um, representing our people and it's great. There are more than 140 teams competing and there's no shortage of passion or skill. In 1970, the Redfern All Blacks, along with La Perouse, became the foundation clubs of the inaugural New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout, the Koori knockout, as it's more widely known. So the knockout was started by six men. Um, they were, you know, in their late teens to early 20s. Those men included Victor Wright, Bob Morgan, Dan Rose, Bill Kennedy, George Jackson and Bobby Smith. And they were all living in and around... Um, the inner city, so they, um, you know, they just fell in love with the city and the possibilities and excitement of the city, and so they gathered together. And there had been already knockouts being played, so because the the welfare board, you know, in a way, authorised those knockouts to take place. But even as the welfare board's hold was weakening, there were still knockouts being held. But the difference with with the knockout that started in 1971 is that it was a, intended to be a statewide event and it was run for blackfellas by blackfellas. So there was no sort of sense of the hovering presence of the of government or the welfare board. So they really they were being strategic as well as they wanted to create the same sort of social environments that they knew from back home. We, we, we had hoped for success and, uh, you know, for it to kick on and, and do things, but to where it is today, it's, you know, I would have never dreamed of, you know, 60, 64 sides in the men's comp and, you know, all the, the, the 12s and 15s and sometimes the 10s and 8s and, and, and the women. Bill Kennedy is one of the founders of the Koori Knockout. He was born in Walgett but moved to Sydney in the late 1960s. Yeah, it started in uh, Sydney. There was a, a few of us. We were living in Sydney at, at the time and working. We formed uh, Koori United. We started out, it was uh, Koori Tigers. We, we started out with uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Little at the time was our first president. And uh, we, we started as Koori Tigers and then eventually uh, changed to Koori, you know, Koori United. We thought we'd uh, put on a knockout back in 1970 and uh, to see who'd, who'd turn up. There was uh, seven teams, La Perouse, Redford, All Blacks, Kempsey, Walgett, there was a South Coast team and uh, probably a, a Western Sydney team. The knockout began within a complex economic and social context with the emergence of a political movement in Redfern. You know, just I think the creativity and the abiding impulse to take up the challenges and to take those challenges to the formal institutions of power. And I think, you know, to see rugby league within that picture of, you know, Aboriginal self-determination and you know, cultural resurgence, 
of demanding a you know a rightful place within the nation it's generally you don't put rugby league into that mix but it's there Comparisons can be drawn between the formation of the Koori Knockout and the political aspirations of Aboriginal communities at this time. Aboriginal people were taking back control and doing it their way. This was a very significant time period for Aboriginal people. And I mean, again, it was that galvanising of in that space because after the 67 referendum, a lot of Aboriginal people were moving from the rural, regional and country areas to the city, which Redfern exploded, you know, with a massive population of Aboriginal people. So it was a very exciting political time for us. And we had some great people on the ground and leading leading Aboriginal political rights at that particular point in time. Bill Kennedy says one of the reasons he and his mates formed the knockout was because Aboriginal players were being overlooked in recruitment. Uh, you know... Yeah. You know, not not too many people went out to the country, uh, uh, scouts, and uh, looking at uh, Indigenous players. Uh, uh, you know, they they never got a real opportunity. You know, their opportunities were really limited, and, uh, and we thought this could be a way if if the knockout kicked on, and what you did, and then from those early days, we did see that with uh, Mark. Right, he was a young guy from Moree, and Mark went on. He was only seventeen, but he was graded Newtown Jets. Went on to play New South Wales, and you know that was the start of some of this stuff. You know, for us, it was more of a, an opportunity. You know, to give our our players an opportunity to uh, sort of come to Sydney, but also it was uh, we seen it as, you know. A, as a gathering of Aboriginal people, you know, with strong social benefits and that sort of stuff. And it was a time when, you know, friends and families and whoever had that opportunity to come together. From the 1960s, Aboriginal men began to be seen at the elite level of the game. Jordan Perry, host of Over the Black Dot, and historian John Maynard will take us through some of the most influential players in the game's history. Uh, Eric, of all those matches in the World Championship, that appeared, to, to me as a spectator anyway, as to be the easiest of the four. Would you agree with that? Yes, well, I think so, Norman. At the finish, I thought that, well, I think we, in our first game against France, I think we really give them something and we seem to have knocked them around a bit. And then when they come to the final, I just don't think they could have filled their best side. And, mm. of course, we had plenty of strength in reserve and I think that all counted. Eric Sims, okay, first and foremost, he is my second cousin. So my family from Karua, which is a small um, Aboriginal mission there just north of Newcastle, about 40 minutes north. And the Simses are, our, our cousins have still got the Sims there and we're the Perrys. So, and there's the Saunders, there's a few groups of families. But, yeah, that, that's Eric's mob there. And, um, you know, obviously he played for South, you know, back in the, uh, in the mid-60s, the mid-70s. He played about 200 games there. He was a notable goal kicker, but but more notably, he was a field goal kicker. He was absolutely sensational at um, kicking field goals. Rasmussen's up a dummy half for Australia, a field goal attempt by Sims, and it's there. He kicked five field goals in about 10 minutes in a match in the 1960s, and because back then it was worth two points, mm. and, and you had Eric, who was so good at kicking them, he'd 
keep kicking the uh, kicking the scoreboard over. So the, the New South Wales Rugby League back then, that's what actually forced them to bring it back to one. They wanted to get the field goals out of the game because the likes of Eric were just too good at snapping them. Great. Shocked. You know, I had to think, you know, a recognition. I played the game because I loved playing rugby league. It didn't worry me about getting trophies or anything. All I wanted to do was get the enjoyment out of playing rugby league. I, I can touch on um, Lionel Morgan briefly. I mean, to me, uh, certainly the first um, Aboriginal international player. He was from Tweed Heads and he was an outstanding winger. Um, he, he represented the, the Kangaroos in two Scouting tests against wide, France in 1960, you know, a World Cup match in England the same year, I think it was. In the tackle, but with perfect understanding and attacking in depth, Australia drives deep into French territory. So he was a, a, a truly a great player, and, and that's that recognition of um, being the first Aboriginal player to play, you know, for your country. So, um, yeah, he was a great player. Yeah, and not without adversity as well. Um, some racially uh, motivated attacks um, that he experienced yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he described a couple of incidents. One was a match in, 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 at Ipswich and he was tackled over the sideline and apparently the whole Ipswich team jumped on top of him and he finished up, he was hospitalised because of the, the injuries. And in another match, he was hospitalised again after being punched by a spectator. But these were the things that Aboriginal men and women uh, have faced and continue to face, mm. you know, this racial abuse. Look, he was um, he wasn't someone I really knew early on uh, following footy, but as you get older and that, you want to go back to the roots of how everything started. So I did some, I've done some reading on him over the years, and my father has too. He's actually done a thesis on um, on you know, young blackfellas using sports and particularly rugby league to get improve their lives and get off the mission. So, and I think it was really significant that um, he got the play for Australia because he was essentially, well, he was essentially the first black fellas to be selected for a national team, which was a pretty significant thing because back in those days, you know, with the um, in the early 1960s, there was a completely different um, country for us as people. And, you know, we only had the referendum in 1967, so our people were always, you know, treated subhuman. So to sort of get to get that exposure on the national stage and, you know, to for our, our young people to know that these things are starting to become possible when he broke through was a pre- pretty significant um, milestone in the history of Aboriginal Rugby League. It's taken Manly 27 minutes to get on the board and Cliff Lyons, one of their stars this year, scored the try. Oh, another favourite. Like Cliffy Lyons, he was born in Miranda in 1961, started his career with North Sydney, and you know, he also played in England with Leeds and Sheffield, but it was with the... The Sea Eagles that Cliffy is best remembered, and he played over 300 games for the club. He was a magical attacking player, fabulous hands. And I mean, I think of him, you know, he was like a magician or a or a conjurer, you know, working a sleight of hand tricks. He could work magic with his hands and uh, send players through gaps and just a brilliant tactician. Coming involved in the uh, movement, it went on to uh, Cliff Lines. He beat Chris O'Sullivan pointlessly with a, a good palm and came inside And, yeah, Belcher. things, things that he achieved, he won two grand finals with Mandy. He won the, the Clive Churchill medal in the 87 grand finals, the best player on the ground, won the Daily M Award for the best player of the year twice in 1990 and 94. He played six matches for New South Wales and played six times for the Kangaroos. Um, there was nothing that Cliffy didn't achieve. I mean, really one of our truly 
greatest ever players. And then also, I think, a standout is he played for an Aboriginal team that played two tests against uh, Papua New Guinea in 1999. So, um, but... Um, yeah, a great, um, a great Aboriginal player. There's a little coloured lad, Larry Coralwood by name, who's risen up to shine above the rest. When this mighty speed Larry, the Black Flash, as we call him, eh? So, yeah, he. I don't know if it was official, but he was always known as um, the fastest player in the game. The fastest player in the game across the world, they used to say back then, you know, but... um. They used to actually used to have those match races back then. I'm not sure if he ever went in one, but geez, the Black Flash, he could move, mate. Um, you know, he was um, in that Balmain Tigers team in the early 80s, uh, scored a, a bucket load of tries. He's got um, an incredible record. I think he might have played around 100 games at the top level, and he's probably scored about 70 tries. So, you know, 70% chance he's going to score in every game. That's pretty, um, that's pretty handy. Uh, he also played... Yeah, for the Blues, and he played for um, Australia. He scored tries at all levels as well, and um, he's just a he's just a, a beautiful, humble person. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him last year as well. Uh, so he's played for Balmain and Gold Coast, and you know the significance of someone's effect on the game. That when those two teams play each other um, in a preseason trial, they play for the Larry Coral Shield. So that goes to show like how much um, high esteem he's he's held in over the years for what, what he's done. He's also listed um, as one of the players in the 19 players picked for the Balmain Tigers team of the century as well. So, you know, the Balmain Tigers have been around a long time now, and if you can crack that side, it just goes to show, you know, how deadly he actually were. <laughs> Since 1908, Aboriginal people have not only fought for their inclusion within the game of rugby league, but have redirected state assimilation ambitions to carve out a place to showcase their talents and Aboriginal identity. Well, it's the, it's the same sort of thing, you know, with AFL. Suddenly in the late 60s, I mean, they suddenly realised the incredible untapped talent that was lying in Aboriginal communities. And when you look across the past 50 years, some of the greatest players in both those codes' histories have been Aboriginal players. And it's just, it was like an opening of a floodgate. And it's been incredible for us and incredible pride for our communities with the achievements of our players on the, the football field in both of those codes. And again, I hark back, sadly, so many were denied those opportunities in decades gone by. So, you know, it was... It was just the, the agency of being able to be in charge of your own lives and families and provide for them through football that is there and that, that acceptance. So they were long overdue, both of those codes, but thankfully they're beginning to make up for it. But they still, and those clubs, um, still have a long way to go, as does the wider community in, um, you know, our situation in this country today. You know, Yanni Wright said that game the other night and on South the first half they just blitzed them you know you, you between three players and they were all blackfellas you know they were outstanding on the night and and, and, and the wonderful spectacle of, of the other one the other week against the Marys and, and and the culture that was there that's been there from the beginning of the time they were signed up you know when you see a blackfella driving around a Rolls Royce you know that he's made it we ain't got 
That's Dan Sultan featuring Meg Mac with Reaction. The sound engineer for tonight's program was Andre Shabanoff. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when a group of Indigenous academics and activists consider the consequence of the abolition of criminal justice systems. I'm going to start with a story. It's the third day of the inquest and the regulars are shuffling in. Lawyers from the nurses' union, corrective services or police or individual officers, and they've all set their place at two rows of bar tables. Before the family enters, there's a bit of nudging and chuckling and jokes about the weekend and whiskey and whether you can bill it to your clients. And they're there to pour over an Aboriginal man who died in custody some years ago now, whose photo sits just two metres away from them. It's these lawyers' jobs as his mother sits in the sun outside to calm her nerves, to tell the court that her son was destined to die and to resist recommendations being issued to state institutions who we know are responsible. It's the inquest's job, the coroner reminds everybody on the first day, to find the cause and the manner of death and not to blame. Meanwhile, the families who lost their son 
essentially the only people not being paid to be there and those for whom this inquest means the most, are looking for accountability. And often they are looking for changes that would, had they been implemented before they died, prevent the death of the person they loved. These are recommendations that are hard fought, but even when they are won, they don't bind state parties. In most jurisdictions, there's no legislated obligation to respond to, let alone follow, a recommendation that comes from this gruelling and violent process. When you hear about the horrors of prison and police against First Nations people, it's sometimes from inquests into deaths in custody or similar commissions of inquiry, like those into the abuse of young people at Dondale. And these are commissions of inquiry tasked with investigating otherwise opaque and violent and isolated institutions that hold total control over people's lives, loves and deaths. And for those who are interested in the abolition of these institutions, as I think you should be, inquests can be tools, vexed tools. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Jay McAllister and this is Speaking Out.